Welcome to Centric Lab's first audio mini-series, Planetary Dysregulation, Capitalism and Healthcare. From Centric Lab, we are Josh and Aracelli, and are joined by Guppy Bola and Rihanna Osborne. Guppy is a strategist, researcher and expert in public health. She is also co-founder of Decolonizing Economics, which is building a solidarity economy movement rooted in racial justice. Rhiannon is a soon-to-be doctor, researcher, and organizer, working across access to medicines, climate justice, abolition, and mutual aid. The intention of this audio project is to discuss the links between systems and imaginations rooted in supremacy, the dysregulation of planetary systems, and the poor health outcomes being experienced by peoples who are racialized and minoritized. We also aim to dismantle the individualized health narrative propagated by Western medicine, as it has been used to blame people for their poor health, which helps propagate health injustice. As we go through the audio story, we'll be using certain linguistic baselines. First, nature and all living beings are referred to in a plural form, as we are all ecosystems. We are all plural. Second, is the use of the letter S at the end of words such as knowledges is to signify that indigeneity is not a monolith and holds mutual cultures and multiple cultures, thoughts and knowledges. It also is inclusive of non-human knowledges. This mini-series is across four episodes. In episode one, we focused on definitions within the topic. In the second episode, we provided an introduction to the epistemologies of supremacy and how health became individualized. In this third episode, we explore how capital systems affect healthcare systems and the erasure of indigenous healing imaginations. The series will end with episode four, which will focus on how the right to pollute policies contribute to planetary dysregulation. This section will open with Rhiannon, who will be discussing how the system of capitalism affects our health systems. The section will end with Aricelli describing how the individualization of health narratives erases both indigenous and non-human kin healing knowledges. As we touched on earlier, in the extractive economy, health is mostly about your ability to work and or the dis- dis- disposability of your health to extractivism. Now, of course, this means that medicine itself um, has been an important tool in policing this through, as Guppy touched on earlier, eugenics, the quote-unquote scientific justification of slavery, and much more. Um, as my housemate said the other day, quote, most of the history of medicine is eugenics, leeches, and prisons. I don't know why people are surprised that so many fucked up things still happen in it, end quote. <laughs> it's only by recognising these roots and realising how health and medicine have been programmed to serve capital that we can reclaim healing. And throughout this section, um, I'm going to read some quotes from the book Health Communism, which I would really, really recommend reading. Um, and also on this topic, the Centric Lab report called From Care to Healing. One of the, I guess, more obvious ways in which extractivism shapes our health systems is that health systems are a site of further extraction, with private companies able to take over and extract public money from increasingly marketized healthcare systems, public money or people's money, individuals' money. People die and suffer because they can't afford healthcare or because an outsourced private company like Serco has messed up an entire country's COVID testing system while making record profits or because the staff are so underpaid and overworked they can't care for people the way that they would like. 
Health as a site of extraction also spans everything from the pharmaceutical industry to the self-help industry to the diet industry to the privatisation of health data. Extractivism also shapes things like the caring industry. The authors of health communism use the term extractive abandonment, where people who are deemed surplus to capital and made ill by exploitation are both abandoned and deemed a burden, whilst continuing to be extracted from via the health and healing, heal, the health and caring industries, um, and the state and private management of those. Through the World Trade Organization, the IMF, and the World Bank, structural adjustment programs have forced much of the world to privatize and marketize their health systems. And healthcare for all, as originally conceptualized, for example, in the Alma Ata Declaration, has been co-opted and reduced to the insurance company's term of, quote, universal health coverage, opening up two global north companies, quote unquote, untapped markets in the global south. Extensive research has documented how this has resulted in horrific health consequences in many countries, including excess maternal and infant mortality. And I kind of am going to go on to talk a little bit about how narrow and limited and often violent healthcare is under the extractive economy. But I really loved this quote um, from Ruth Wilson Gilmore. Gilmore. <laughs> I really loved this quote from Ruth Wilson Gilmore um, in a recent interview on Death Panel, where she says, quote, abolition is the fight for free, universal, non-exclusion, non-exclusionary healthcare for everybody, even in the more da- narrow definition of what healthcare is at the moment, end quote. We must fight not only for access to healthcare, but transformation of the structure, function and purpose of healthcare and our very understanding of health itself. Building on this, the knowledges and practices within health and medicine at the moment are deeply limited and often deeply flawed and aligned um, with systems of oppression because of the system's allegiance to the extractive economy and the coloniality that that it entails. Going back to the roots of medicine, so-called health interventions are used to exclude and entrap those who are not useful to society and capital through its deeply, deeply castle structure, in particular when it comes to mental health and disability. This comes not only through health systems directly collaborating with the police, prisons and immigration systems, but being carceral in and of themselves. The history of mental health care mostly involves putting political dissidents, difficult women, disabled people and others in prison. And this shows up in so many ways in today's mental health care system, which has not changed as much as people like to think it has. Having had placements during medical school in quote-unquote psychiatric prisons, this carcerality masquerading as care relies on racism, misogyny, ableism and state violence and promotes further illness, not healing. Nobody who is imprisoned can be well. In addition, the class and professional power of doctors remains shaped by and itself shapes supremacisms. With healthcare as heavily regulated and gatekeeped and doctors as the primary gatekeeper, supremacisms easily make quote-unquote caring environments sites of violence. For example, through the gaslighting of women, the horrific care that many trans patients received, receive and the increased childbirth complications for black patients. This is not only due to the behaviours of individual doctors, but it is systemic. For example, black patients may have different algorithms based on supposed inherent differences in biology from research based in eugenics. In addition, within the health system staff itself, um, the deeply interpersonal work of nursing is undervalued and exploited because of the gendered and racialized nature of who does the work. 
Um, and I'm just going to read now a quote from page 12 of Health Communism, um, which I think summarizes this really well. Quote, the authority of expertise and the power that medical ex- expertise holds over the survival of modern disabled people has its roots in racial capitalism's corrupt framings built from the idea that certain people were property and that the state was only responsible for caring for those deserving of its artificially limited resources. Engaging with and fighting back against these systems of power becomes, for individuals marked as surplus, a never-ending assault of deliberate austerity at the hands of the state. End quote. I think also on this topic of how uh, limited and violent health systems can be, as a result of the extractive economy um, and supremacisms, the very tools at our hands when it comes to healing, and in particular the tools of of, of kind of formalised healthcare professionals, are so narrow. And as Araceli will touch on later, this is also due to the deliberate erasure of other forms of healing. I can't count the amount of times I've sat with a patient with chronic pain or depression or complex bowel issues and realise that there's actually very little we can offer them. Health interventions are limited by the constraints of focusing on ability to work and the requirement for these interventions to be simple or beneficial to capital or individualistic or focused on lifestyle changes or medications. These interventions often are better at maintaining disconnection rather than tackling the root causes of disease and illness. For example, we know so little about how trauma, which, as Stacey Haynes writes, is of course always political, affects the body and how to heal it, because it's not convenient for capital for us to truly heal from the wounds it inflicts. And of course, the knowledge of communities who know most about the complex interconnectedness of trauma are those whose knowledge is, quote unquote, not good enough for medicine. And I'm going to read another quote from like the first introductory page of health communism. Um... And it's a quote from the Socialist Patient Collective. Quote, illness, you point out, is the only possible form of life in capitalism. In fact, the psychiatrist who is wage dependent is a sick person like each of us. The ruling classes merely give him the power to cure or to hospitalise. Cure, this is self-evident, can't be understood in our system to mean the elimination of illness. It serves exclusively as the maintenance of the ability to go to work where one stays sick. End quote. If the purpose of health systems is to support capital, then the potential of medicine is severely hindered. What is researched and who has access to the benefits of research and medicine are determined not by public health, but by capital. At the same time as holding the deep systemic flaws of medicine, we can recognise the incredible amounts of useful knowledge that it contains, like life-saving antibiotics, huge progress in surgical techniques, vaccines, and so much more. We can recognise these as incredibly useful for our collective healing and well-being, but trapped and limited within the extractive system which medicine is operating in and upholding. In this vein, essential healthcare is denied to the majority of people across the world, in particular through the global pharmaceutical industry, which uses patents and knowledge monopolies to deem most of the global south as disposable, whilst being one of the most profitable industries in the world by prioritising the rich and global north countries. Research, um, medical research, is skewed towards those who can pay, leaving tuberculosis, the global disease of poverty, and one of the world's biggest killers, without proper treatment options. The potentially liberating and healing power 
of essential medicines is captured, commodified, and then denied. We must sort through the fog and tease away these essential common goods from extractive systems. A liberating approach to health and healing could be conceptualised through Rupamari and Raj Patel's notion of deep medicine. Deep medicine is a practice of diagnosis and healing action that incorporates um, history and dynamics of power into our understanding of diseases that plague uh, modern industrialised humans in order to change those health outcomes. It recognises the colonial capitalist framing that ill health is the result of individual choices or biological flaws, or that we can achieve health whilst disconnected from each other and a robust way of life, a, re- web, a robust web of life that is critical for human thriving. Deep medicine locates the pathology in the social, political, and environmental circumstances around the body, which dictate how the body responds. If those circumstances are defined by damage through racism, cis heteropatriarchy, environmental destruction, and exploitation, the result is poor health of people and the planet. Deep medicine reconnects people and communities to the web of relationships which confer health and centres healing as the abolition of these circumstances which generate sickness. And that passage is from an unpublished piece and Rupa helped me to write that passage. Um, So thanks, Rupa. To take the example of infections um, and what this might look like as an kind of of an ever-flowing and adapting combination of uh, deep medicine, this might look like tackling the systemic drivers of vulnerability to infection, such as stress, access to food, unsafe workplaces and housing, living in harmony with ecosystems, including animals, rather than extracting from them and generating not only exposure to pathogens, but the emergence of entirely new ones. It could look like knowledge generation based on public health need and learning from our kin, such as mushrooms and bacteria, to find healing antibiotics, and then ensuring that those are collectively shared and all those who need them can access them. It would look like support for people suffering from an infection, like food packages, access to care, guaranteed income, or better still, you don't need an income to acquire all the necessities of life. Community-based knowledge-sharing interventions that can help prevent spread of infections without stigma. Dignified spaces for treatment and holistic support for people recovering from an infection grounded in rest, community and connectedness. Thanks, Rhiannon, for that. I am now going to be picking up from this individualized narrative and, and applying it to understand how this narrative also erases knowledges that think about health in an ecological manner, meaning that most Western trained doctors or health experts do not consider factors such as contamination, exposure to nature, lived experiences, and living conditions as part of disease or healing pathways. Yet, for many of us that are racialized as Black or Indigenous or Afro-Indigenous, we know that that's not true. We know that our health is interconnected, both interconnected with our community, interconnected with our planet, and interconnected with non-human kin. For example, in 1933, writer, intellect, and professor Dr. Carter Woodson, in his book, The Miseducation of a Negro, he talks about how it wasn't the race of a Black person that was causing their poor health outcomes, but instead it was the places that they lived, 
the experience of slavery because in 1933 when he wrote this book many of the people that were alive at the time were still within that first generation of freed people and so he said that all of these things needed to be taken into consideration and also how the black person was being treated currently in society as to why black people or those racialized as black were experiencing the poor health outcomes they were so even as far back as 1933 there has been the thinking that the places that we live the experiences that we're living in those places has something to do or with our health and impacts our health so let's look at four things the first is that race for a very, very long time has been seen as a biological phenomena that determine that, de- that determines health, sorry. And it's not something that has gone away. We saw it during the COVID-19 pandemic that we saw statements or read statements that were oversimplified to say black people are disproportionately more at risk for COVID, or that indigenous people are getting COVID at a higher rate. But that is a very incomplete statement, because it is the experience of racialization, rather than a person's biology that is making them at risk. So for that, we go a little bit further. So that means that if you are living in a neighborhood that has high levels of air pollution, you're also living in a neighborhood that is marginalized and therefore deprived. You're not getting access to the resources that everybody else has, whether it's healthcare, whether it's housing that is fit for purpose, meaning that it's well ventilated, you don't have mold on the walls, you are able to get a good night's sleep because it's well insulated, um, or you are able to feel safe in that home. If you don't have any of these things, plus on top of that, you belong to the multi-ethnic working class, which means you are doing jobs that also expose you to further contaminants. So for example, if you are a nurse, you are being exposed to endocrine disruptors at work. You are also being exposed to the full dysregulation that comes with shift work, because as you're doing shift work, your body clock completely changes. The way that you metabolize completely changes when you're doing shift work. So we know that those that engage in shift work are at higher risk for a multitude of non-communicable diseases. And so when you're putting all of these factors together and we begin to understand that because of the way that our society is organized, that it, it is put together by racist supremacy-based systems, those who are then seen as Black or as Indigenous or as Native American, they are going to be the ones who are going to be experiencing these types of habitats or environments at a higher rate. And that, that phenomena right there is what is affecting their poor health outcomes, not an innateness in who they are or an innateness of their being or their physiology. And that's why it's important that we understand health 
in terms of an ecological phenomena because it is instrumental to the work of justice. And so therefore, the individualization of health helps propagate racist scientific ideas of eugenics, right? That it is your fault, that is something wrong with, innately wrong, in fact, with you and your genes and you as a person or your peoples. So finally, it also overburdens racialized peoples that they have to prove that their poor health outcomes are being driven by external environmental factors, and thus the birth of environmental justice movements. So one of the first movements came from 1985, a predominantly black community in North Carolina that won a case that the contamination that they were living through was directly affecting their health. But to go further, it also erases healing imaginations. And this is really important. So for those of us who are of an indigenous background, we know that we depend, our healing, sorry, depends on things like ethnobotany, which in and of itself is a degrading term because you are othering, right? You're saying that it's ethnic botany rather than just botany. And we have known for millennia that certain plants affect um, certain types of healing. We also understand and have understood that the contamination of our land, soil, and air has a direct effect on, on our biological systems, on the functioning of our biological systems. And yet here again, we are at the burden sign side of things that we have to prove that these practices and these cognitive framings of health are actually valid. Another example is ancient and indigenous practices such as meditation. Meditation, yes, it's very much known as coming from the East, but it is also practiced in various other cultures. And meditation in the West has been extrapolated as a very individualized way of healing. Yet, we know that it's not. Meditation requires, again, time and space of safety for you to be able to do it. But it also requires you to take those deep breaths. And those breaths need to be filled with clean air, not contaminated air full of toxins or endocrine disruptors that are going to burden and dysregulate our systems. Another example of meditation comes from the Raramuri people of Turtle Island. They do long prayer runs and meditations across the Sierra Madre territories. And in this practice, you are connecting land body, mind, and spirit. So you are seeing the ground as the place of your ancestors, the spirit of where your ancestors are, and you're connecting to them. But you're also connecting to the spirit, to the beingness of the mountains, of the land. And then you're having this full interconnection between your body and your mind. And this healing practice makes it incredibly easy for us to understand 
that for many of us in order to heal, or really for all of us to heal, we need access to our land. So we can't talk about the planetary dysregulation conversation and health without thinking about indigenous land rights. And I want to be very specific that this movement of land back is international, right? The peoples of Australia or what is now Australia, they need their land back. The peoples of Palestine need their land back as well as the peoples of Turtle Island and so on and so forth. Anybody who has been removed from their lands in order for us to practice our healing, our healing practices, in order to feed our imaginations and continue to feed those imaginations for the next generations. But as we know, this is going to become even more of a threat as the years come in, because capitalism is having a reinvention. It's going through its <laughs> Madonna and Cher moment where they want to reinvent it to capitalism 2.0, because this time we're going to make it green. This time we're going to use renewable energy and it's going to be okay. But it's not okay if we still take it under the narrative of capitalism, which is to take, take, and take. You cannot have a multitude of electric vehicles and consume them at the rate that we're currently consuming vehicles because lithium, which is the battery, sorry, which is the element that is needed for these batteries is incredibly water intensive. Not only that, but to extract the lithium is damaging to multiple ecosystems and it also requires the land of indigenous peoples across Chile, Argentina, and Bolivia. And their lives are already coming under threat. Their lives are already put, are being put on the line to try to protect their lands so they can continue to have those generational healing practices and imaginations. So we have to put all of this together when we are fighting for justice that we understand what land back means, that it doesn't mean we want the land back for our consumption or for hoarding. We want the land back so the land can become free, so we can be in kinship with the land, so we can continue our scholarships of understanding the land in terms of healing and mutualistic healing. Because it's not just about understanding how the land heals us, but it's also about understanding how we participate in the communal healing of the land.